All right, well, this morning we're going to cover John the Baptist. So, John the Baptist is my favorite, outside of Jesus, my favorite person in all the Bible. I, I just find him super encouraging. So, I, I love this study, so hopefully you do too. So, when we talk about John the Baptist, what are some initial thoughts that come to mind? What do we know about him? Um, what, what would you say characterized his life and ministry? What are just some initial thoughts? John the Baptist. Locusts and honey. Locusts and honey. Okay. Jason. He baptized Jesus. Okay. We'll cover that. Anything else? Uh, Decrease that Jesus would increase. Ah. So we have a, a place in Scripture where John makes this famous statement that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. Okay. So he has a message, and his message is, is one of repentance. Okay? Good. Anything else? He's said to be like the new Elijah. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so we have this connection with Elijah, whatever that is. Jesus will tell us he's Elijah. But then when people ask him, are you Elijah? He says no. So what do, what do we do with that? Okay. Maybe one more. Anything else? John the Baptist. Awesome. He's throughout the Gospels. So he's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he shows up in Acts. Okay. So he's all over. John the Baptist, other than Jesus, is the only other person in the New Testament that there's fairly detailed descriptions of his, his birth, of his life, and his death. So he's unique in the New Testament outside of Christ. He's, he's a major figure. So today we're going to kind of just, we're going to give an overview of his life, and then we're going to apply it. And we're, we're really going to try and, since he's covered in all four Gospels, just so that we're not all over the place the whole time, we're going to try and just camp out in Luke 1 on his birth. We're going to look at Matthew 3, and we'll, we'll use that as a launching place to look at other aspects of his ministry. But then lastly, we will look at his death in Mark 6. So Luke 1, we're not going to read all of it. It's a long text. But it's mostly focusing on his parents. So let's just put ourselves in the context of the beginning of, of kind of the New Testament time. What, what are we in as far as Israel's history? What has characterized this time... And really, a couple of hundred years prior to that in Israel's history. Or maybe to... Yes, Dawson. No uh, prophets. For how long? 300 years. 400 years, right. So we have this, this... Israel sins, they go into exile. When God brings them back, there, there's this lack of prophetic voice for 400 years. And what might that signal to us? Even though Israel came back from exile, are things as they're supposed to be? Things are peachy keen. Everything's great between them and the Lord. No, God has been silent for 400 years. No word from God. No prophetic voice. But the end of the Old Testament, do we find that God is just going to be silent for the rest of Israel's existence? No, we find hope that he will speak again. 
So with that in mind, we're going to, again, summarize Luke 1. So we have Mary, who an angel reveals to her, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. But then she has a, some sort of a relative, maybe a cousin, some sort of relation to her named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is with child. And when Mary goes to visit her, what happens to the child in Elizabeth's womb when Mary is present? The child leaps for what? For joy. So this, something's unique here. This child can, can sense he's in the presence of Christ and he leaps for joy. And the rest of Luke 1 is going to really focus not so much on his birth, but on Zechariah's prophecy. What is characterized by Zechariah and Elizabeth? They're old. And what else? They're old and what? What did you say, Eric? They're childless. What does that remind you of? Anybody in the Old Testament? We're all nodding our... Oh, we got... Yes. Who does that remind you of? Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah. Are there other people in the Old Testament that are barren? Yeah. Hannah. Who else? Yeah. Rebecca, yeah. So there's this kind of connection back to the Old Testament that you have an old couple that can't bear children, and now they can. So there's shadows, there's pointing back to the Old Testament already where we're like, this is always somebody significant in the Old Testament, that's parents are old and barren, and then they conceive. So we're already, we're getting signals if we know our Old Testament that this is going to be a significant birth. Whoever this child is going to be is going to be a major figure in God's history of redemption. So Zechariah is who? What, what is his occupation? What? He works in the temple. And he's in the temple one day and he gets this prophecy about his child. And then his son, when his son's born, can he speak? Can he talk? No. So he, he's going to write down um, this prophecy. What do we find in his prophecy in 67 through 79 about that might be significant? I'll read it. Verse 68. <clears throat> Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our uh, before him all our days and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation <clears throat> to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our god whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What is this child going to be? Starts with a P. A He's going to be a prophet. 
And we're going to, so we're going to cover that in just a second, but also, what does it tell us? He's going to do what? Also starts with a P. He's going to prepare the way. This is, if we know our Old Testament, this is a big statement that is going to be covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, that he is this voice crying out, make ready the way for the Lord. So his birth. What we want to highlight in his birth is that his parents are old and barren. So we're already, we're getting signals that this is going to be a significant figure, just like Abraham giving birth, or Sarah giving birth in the Old Testament, just like Samuel's birth in the Old Testament. He's going to be a significant figure. And the Lord, through a prophecy to Zechariah, we get a word that this is going to be a prophet who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. So just back up to where we were. How long has it been since the Lord spoke? And what did he just do? He spoke. Like, this is a big deal. You're waiting for a word from the Lord for 400 years, and now we get one. And what's the word? God's sending my son here, Zechariah's son, to be a prophet who's going to make ready the way of the Lord so that he can do what to his people? Save them. Big deal. That's his birth. Any questions on his birth? Great. All right, let's focus on his ministry now. So we've already said he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Uh, Just flip over a page, if you're still in Luke, to Luke chapter 3, verse 2. What what is the formula we usually read in the beginning of a prophetic message? The what of the who came to who? The word of the Lord came to fill in the blank. Well, guess what we're going to read about? John the Baptist. Verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the what? The The word of God came. The word of the Lord came to who? To John. So he's what? Zechariah says he's going to be a prophet. Here, what, is he, what do we find? A formula of. He's a, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. <clears throat> chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 28. This is Jesus speaking. <clears throat> I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John is a great prophet. Other places, Jesus is going to tell us that he's the greatest prophet of Israel. Right? So we have a prophet. We've already said his message is characterized by what? What's the content of his message? We'll look at that in a second. But what did you say, Dave? Uh, Repentance. Yeah. Prophets usually give this word to Israel or Judah. You're in sin. Here are the ways you're in sin. Repent and God will save. God will restore. God will bless. So we see his ministry. He is that of a prophet. Here's where we're going to slow down. We're going to be in in Matthew for a significant time. Matthew 3. And we're just going to kind of go down, down through these verses. And we're going to go through the whole chapter. So first, we're going to start verses 1 through 3. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Somebody want to volunteer and take that? Just the first three verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Okay. So he quotes from the Old Testament. John the Baptist here, this is the first time he appears in Matthew's Gospel. And he's preaching out in the wilderness. That's going to be significant. And his message, as we've said, is repent, for the kingdom of God is what? Years off. It's at hand. It's, it's coming. It's, it's before us. And then he's going to quote from Isaiah. Anyone know where that passage is in Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Anybody familiar with Isaiah, the book of Isaiah? First 39 chapters are mainly focused on what? Israel's what? Sin and God's what? Judgment. We end Isaiah 39 with this this God giving a word that what nation is going to come bring Judah into exile? Babylon. Babylon. So we end 39 with this, because of your sin, you're going to be exiled. You're going to be out of the land. If we end Isaiah in chapter 39, it's quite a a depressing book, right? It's just like you're sinning, all the nations are sinning, and God's going to judge everybody. But then chapter 40, there's this turn. There's great hope. Let's turn to Isaiah 40, and we'll see kind of in the context what's happening in Isaiah, and then go back to Matthew and see how that applies. So again, Israel is promised they're going to be in exile. They're going to be out of the land. You just get this word, and then you come to chapter 40, and verse 1 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Is Israel out of exile when we get to Matthew? Are they out of exile? Yes, right? They're back in the land. But spiritually, are they restored? There's an aspect in which there is not been a full return from exile. We're, we're waiting another like fulfillment here, a full fulfillment. There's also echoes of the book of Exodus, where Israel's in the wilderness, and the Lord is going to bring them into the promised land. All of the second half of Isaiah, chapter 40 through 66, there's this theme of a new Exodus coming, Right? Where, where God is going to deliver his people, he's going to bring them into a promised land that's going to be perfect, and there isn't going to be sin. So there's these themes of exile. We're still waiting a, a, an ultimate fulfillment of being brought back. And we're also awaiting a new exodus, where God is going to come down, and he's going to deliver his people, not just physically, but spiritually. 
Go back to Matthew. The context of Matthew, we have all in these first couple chapters, chapter 1, 2, 3, and into chapter 4, we have all these, this, this formula repeated. Here's a scripture, and it was fulfilled. It's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. And we're finding that Jesus, is his life in these first couple chapters is, is paralleling the life of the nation of Israel. They were down in Egypt, and God brought them out. Well, Jesus went down where? To Egypt, and he's bringing him where? To the land. It's into that context we come to Matthew 3. In Matthew 3, we find here John is preaching repentance, and we're told that he is the one Isaiah 40 talks about. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the forerunner of God coming to, to bring Israel back into the land ultimately, truly, in every aspect of the word. He's the servant of the Lord in Isaiah that we're waiting for. And John is the one who's declaring, make yourselves ready. How do we make ourselves ready? Here he's telling Israel it's through repentance. He's, he's the voice calling out in the wilderness, the Lord's coming. All that we read about in Isaiah, he's doing it now. He, he's coming now. So he's the voice. I think it's significant because every single one of the Gospels is going to highlight this about John. He's the voice. He's the one Isaiah is talking about. He's the one. He, he's coming. He's telling us, like, listen, Jesus is coming. God is coming. Who's he preparing the way of? Who is the Messiah in verse 3? It's God himself, right? The Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. So he's the forerunner of Jesus. We see in verse 4 something we can use as a kind of a launching pad to talk about one of the questions we've had. Verse 4, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. 2 Kings, when it describes Elijah, who does it, how does it describe him as being clothed? Same way, right? So we have this parallel here, and, and the other Gospels will make explicit that John the Baptist is Elijah. But then John the Baptist says he's not Elijah. But Jesus tells us he's Elijah. What do we do with that? Anyone want to take a stab? Is, is John the Baptist Elijah or is he not? Dave. Could you say it figuratively but not literally? Yeah, so is he the reincarnation of Elijah? No. He is not. I'm glad we're all on the same page. Somebody want to take Luke 1.17? Luke 1.17. While you're turning there, Malachi, the end of Malachi, tells us who's going to come before the, the, the day of the Lord that is going to be at hand. Who is going to come back? I'll give you a hint. It starts with an E. Elijah, right? So we're waiting for Elijah to come back. Are we waiting for the reincarnation of Elijah? No. The Bible will often talk about somebody coming, but not in a literal sense. Is Jesus David? Not the reincarnation of David, but he's parallel with David in many ways. He's a king like David. 
John the Baptist is not Elijah incarnate in the flesh, but we find in Luke 1, 17, who he is, how he is like Elijah. Somebody want to read that? Luke 1, 17. Yeah. So in the spirit and what? Power. power. So he's, he's a, an Elijah-like figure. He's an Elijah-like figure who's out in the wilderness, dressed like Elijah, eating like Elijah, and preaching like Elijah. Remember, Elijah's like the first major prophet of Israel, right? The first, like, prophetic figure, major aspect, representative And we're going to have now the closing of that kind of Old Testament prophet with another Elijah-like figure. Questions on that? How is Jesus, or how is John the Baptist and Elijah connected? Any questions, comments, observations, disagreements? All welcome. Yes. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. What, somebody else may know, so please feel free to answer. I don't know if they actually think he's physically going to be reincarnate. But the end of Malachi, Malachi 4, they're, they're expecting Elijah to come back. And they don't think John, just like they don't think Jesus is the Messiah, they don't think John the Baptist was Elijah. So they're still waiting, you know. So I don't know if they think he's like coming back in the flesh in the same way he was here, or if they would take it as spirit of Elijah kind of thing. They, of course, the one unique thing about Elijah is scriptures where he didn't actually die, so him physically coming back would be different than practically anybody else sure. coming yeah. back. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. All right, so we have John the Baptist. He's a prophet. We have, we have here in verse 3 that he's the forerunner of the Messiah that we find in Isaiah. We also find that he's the Elijah-like prophet. We'll just keep going in verse 5. <clears throat> then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. See here now, he's baptizing. What is baptism? And is, what's different here with John the Baptist than what we might think of baptism? Are there any differences? What's he doing here? What are some elements we see in verse 6? Baptism. What's present? Where are they location-wise? What do they need? And, oh, where do you get that? Yeah. Yeah? So there's some sort of connection between people being sinners and acknowledging that publicly, right? So there's some connection to sin being confessed. What else is present? Water. Water. Where are they? They're at the Jordan River. So we have water being present, people getting wet, okay? 
what do you think this is symbolizing? Is, is this actually like he's like baptizing them and their sins are forgiven because they're baptized? What is he telling them? You're confessing your sin, you're acknowledging your sin, and you're doing that publicly and exposing that how? And what is, what is, the, what is the water necessary for? Can't you just tell people, I'm a sinner, I know I'm a sinner? What is the water for? Yeah, we're seeing symbolic washing. So in this time period, if you were a proselyte, anyone know what a proselyte is? A Jewish convert. Yeah, if you were a, a Gentile who said, Yahweh is the true God, and I want to identify with him, in this time period, they would baptize. It's a, a symbol that you, the filth of your old self is being washed away, and you're now publicly being identified with Yahweh. And who else? Not just Yahweh, but Yahweh and what? His people. So John is, is using the practice of the day to say, yeah, Israel, you're dirty too. And you need to confess your sin and identify with the God that you verbalize with your mouth. But you need to, to, to profess that you're aligned with him and with who Israel is to be. So it's an identification with God and his people. We're going to see in a second that there's going to be a difference, though. So let's keep reading. We're going to see more about his ministry here in verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, who are these? The Pharisees and Sadducees, who are these people? They're the religious leaders. They're coming out. He said to them, you brood of vipers. What is a brood? A what? A group? Yeah. A large group. Another word we could use is offspring, right? He's saying you offspring of serpents. What is he actually saying in the context of the biblical storyline? Genesis 3. We have what? We have Eve and we have a serpent. And they're going to both have what? Offspring. And who is John the Baptist identifying the Pharisees and Sadducees with? The offspring of the woman or the offspring of the serpent? Like, this is actually pretty provocative. Here's Israel's religious leaders, and he says, you're the enemies of Messiah. <laughs> like, you, you guys are opposed to God and his work. It's a really good way to make friends, right? Like, hey, religious leaders of the day, you are offspring of the serpent. Then he tells them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So his message is also telling what? It's a message of repentance, but also a warning that what is coming? Wrath. Judgment. He commands them, and we're going to come back to this stuff in a little bit, but in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We'll come back to that. Verse 9, <clears throat> Do you not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our fathers? For I tell you, God is able from the stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down 
and thrown into the fire. His message of repentance is not general. It's not just say that you're sorry. There's, there's explicit, like, repentance is going to bear fruit. And whether you have good or bad fruit, like, matters, he's saying. And again, we're, we will come back to that. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. We, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So he's this voice in the wilderness crying out, make ready the way of the Lord. And he's, he knows he's not ultimate. He's not the ultimate figure we're waiting for. He knows there's one coming, and how does he identify him? Like, how does he compare to this one who he's, he's telling us is coming? Like, he, this guy's coming is great, and I'm like, I'm close. Like, I'm really important. I'm really somebody but this guy is just like a tad better than I am. How does he identify himself? Pretty low. Here he tells us he's not worthy to carry his sandals. Our culture, like, shoes are not that big a deal. Like, I'll pick up your shoes and it's not a big deal. This culture is very different, though. Like, roads are gross, like, really gross. Feet become really dirty. So they're this symbol of uncleanness. In Jewish culture, in this time, it was only slaves who could carry, or would do stuff with feet, wash feet, carry sandals. And in Jewish culture, only Gentiles, only Gentile slaves were considered low enough to like actually be the one to wash feet and carry sandals. And here, how is John identifying himself in comparison to who we know in just a moment is going to be Jesus that he's talking about? He's like, I'm, I'm the lowest of the low compared to this. This one that's coming is so far supreme and preeminent over me. Like, I, I'm so low that I should be considered the one carrying sandals. Like, I'm not even worthy of that task. He has a very high view of whoever he's talking about. He's going to talk about how he baptizes water Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire. Last thing we'll look at here is, is actually his baptism of Christ. So verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. Let's just stop there. What might be some issues you might have with this? What do we, what do we believe about Jesus? And what did we just say baptism is for? Repentance, publicly. So why is he being baptized, right? I think that's exactly what John's wondering, right? That's what he's going to... Why are you here? Like, why? What? So here's what he says in verse 14. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Like, John's here out in the wilderness preaching, you're all sinners and you need to repent. Pharisees, your offspring of the serpent, and need to repent. And Jesus comes and he says, why are you here to be baptized? Should, shouldn't you be baptizing me? What is he professing about Christ? We've already said it, but just to kind of 
highlight that again. What is he professing about Christ? You, you, you don't need to be baptized. You don't have sin to confess. I, the prophet, am far more sinful than you. You should baptize me. Jesus says in verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. So he baptizes Jesus. So why would Jesus be baptized if he has no sin? I'm not... Yeah. So Jesus is, is here publicly identifying with his people. Like, I'm one of you. I might not have the sin you have, but, but here we're having a public identification with his people. Even just zooming out, though, what is happening? We just said Israel is in exile. And there's shadows in, in the book of Isaiah of Exodus. Jesus here is now following the same path Israel did. He's now, in a sense, crossing the Jordan to bring his people where? To promised land, right? Here we find more parallels with Israel in verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, meaning he went down into the water, I think we see at least a, a, a glimmer of immersion. Amen. Amen. We're happy Baptists here. <laughs> a full dunk. <clears throat> the heavens are opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And, a, and behold, a voice from heaven said what? This is my beloved son. Exodus 4.22 calls Israel what? Yeah, this is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Son. Here we have the perfect Son, in whom I am well pleased. So John's ministry can be characterized by he's a prophet. He's a unique prophet, right? He's this, this voice crying out in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. He's the voice that we're waiting for, for God to come rescue his people. We see that he baptizes people. They publicly uh, identify their sin. They're publicly identifying with Yahweh and his people. And here he baptizes Jesus. Jesus identifies with his people. And, and, and now, it, with the picture of Old Testament, this new exodus is beginning. Jesus is going to be leading his people spiritually into the promised land. This isn't like explicit in the text, but it's implicit that like there's something big happening here. Like there, there's, there's aspects in which this is the beginning of our fulfillment of the return from exile. It's the beginning of the fulfillment of our new exodus, redemption spiritually. And John is the forerunner to all this. He's the one who's announcing all this stuff we've been waiting for in the Old Testament, guys, is here now. And it's here in the person of Jesus. And that's going to characterize his life. But let's look lastly at his death in Mark 6. So we already saw that, that John's not afraid to, like, speak boldly. He calls the religious leaders of the day offspring of the serpent. His death is going to be characterized by the same thing. 
Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. Somebody want to volunteer to read 14 to 29? So I know it's a lengthier pas- passage, but anyone want to read that? Thank you, Kevin. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like the one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to the mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. How does John the Baptist die? Like, why does he die? Because he's doing what? Anthony. I would say, well, because Mary was too afraid of what the people would think. Okay. Rather than, like, going with his own intuition that he was a holy man and should not probably be killed. Why does Herodias want him dead? Like, why, when she's, she's given this, you can have whatever you want, up to half the kingdom, she's like, I want that guy dead. Like, somebody comes up and he says, you can have whatever you want. Why would she say, go kill that guy? Out yeah, he's calling out sin. Here we're having not only the, the Jewish leaders, but also Herod and his family. He sees this behavior and he's like, this is sin. Like, you shouldn't tolerate this, Herod. Like, you, you, should, you should put an end to this. She doesn't like that. So ultimately, why is he beheaded? Because he has the conviction to say this is sin. All right, so here's his life. His birth is marked by, this is going to be a significant figure. He's a prophet. His life is characterized by making ready the way of the Lord. And his death is characterized by preaching righteousness. Questions on his life, comments, observations. All right, so let's apply. I want to really spend a good amount of time and not, not kind of skip over applying. 
The reason John the Baptist is my favorite person in the entire Bible outside of Jesus is I think his life is first and foremost marked by humility. Like, I, I don't think they're outside of Jesus in his incarnation. I don't know of another example of greater humility. Like, you're the guy that Jesus says, there's nobody been born better than this guy. And this is how he lives. All right, let's look at, at the book of John. John chapter 1. So John chapter 1, we see him constantly pointing people to Jesus. In verse 29, well, verse 26, we'll start there. We've already, we've already read this, but he talks about, or verse 27, sorry. There comes one after me whose strap, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. So we already see this, like, pointing away from himself. I'm not worthy of this person. Verse 29, he's, he's telling people, don't look at me, look where? Look at Jesus. In chapter 1, he continues, his disciples are with him. Now, this is a guy who has people following him, right? He's got crowds following him. And what does he tell them to do in ver- starting in verse 35? He has two of his disciples with him who will be apostles what does he say? They, Jesus walks by and he's like, hey, there's the Lamb of God. And they go and follow Jesus. He's not holding on to people. He's not like, you guys got to be my disciples and follow. Like, you chose me to follow. Why would you leave me? He's great, but you're with me. He's like, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. Oh, you're my disciples, but you should be his disciples. Go follow him. This is a man who's just characterized by having people's eyes away from him, off of him, and on Christ. Again, this is the guy Jesus has told us is the greatest person ever. And he's just like, don't look at me, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. Look at Jesus, behold him, follow him, follow him, follow him. Don't follow me, follow him. That's humility. John chapter 3. This is one we've, we've mentioned. This is where we'll kind of park out on his humility. In John chapter 3, Jesus and John are both doing what at the end of chapter 3? Give you a clue. It's in the name of our church. They're doing what? They're baptizing. Jesus is baptizing and John's baptizing. And the disciples of John come to him and say, We got a problem, John. What's happening? Maybe you haven't noticed, but the attendance is starting to decrease here. People aren't coming to your baptism anymore. They're going over to the other place where Jesus is. Like, shouldn't we do something about that? Like, our numbers are getting lower and his numbers are getting greater. And John says, like, let's get the light show out. Let's attract more people. Let's get those people to come back because it's about me, right? That's not what he says. Uh, We'll start in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, 
A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. So here, what is he acknowledging first and foremost? What is he acknowledging about God? Like he's sovereign in where people go. That's up to the Lord. Anybody who's come here has been of the Lord. You yourselves bear witness me, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this voice of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I'm so happy they're going to Jesus. He's the one that I came to announce. He's here. I don't want anybody with me. I want them over there with Jesus. He's the one. He's, he's the one they should follow. I should decrease. My influence, my following should be getting smaller, and his should increase. I think that's a wonderful expression of humility. Now, we are not historically and redemptively in the same situation where, like, people are following us, and, and like, we have this influence, and, like, you know, we're prophets. But there is an aspect in which that should be our heart. Like, people should not look to us. People should not follow us. It's not about us. Like, it's all about pointing others to him. It's all about having others find their their value and worth, not in me or you, but in Christ. Look to Jesus. Look to, like, that's, that's what marks his ministry. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. I'm just a voice. I'm just, I'm just a mouth speaking about Christ. Look to him. Find worth there. Find value there. And that's what characterizes his life, is humility. So let's just make it very practical. How can we develop this? Because in all of us, there is the flesh that wants to be noticed, that wants to be, oftentimes in inappropriate ways, appreciated. Like, I did something wonderful, and I want you to acknowledge it. We might not verbalize that, right? But in our hearts, there's like, I want God to get the glory, increase, and I want to increase too. How do we develop this kind of humility? I'm literally not going to say anything, so. What do you think John did? What? All right, let's just, I, maybe I will say some things. Just prime the pump. What did he do in, in, in chapter 1 of John? Or in chapter 3? of Matthew. There is one coming that is what? Greater than I. So what is he doing? What do, what do we start with to become humble? Okay, we could say it, but what are we saying? What are we recognizing? Yeah, there's somebody greater than us. Like we, If we're going to be humble, we have to start with the supremacy and, and superior worth of another. Like if, if I think he's great and I'm great, then I'm going to be like, he's great, but also look at me. If we recognize comparison to him, I'm, I'm so low. I'm, he is so far superior. That's the beginning of humility, is recognizing the worth of Christ. And then comparing ourselves to that. Like, he's perfectly holy, and I'm not. He tells the truth all the time. I don't. He saves people from sin. I don't. So, like, starting there, he, 
His worth and value is so high. That's going to breed humility. A right view of Jesus produces a right view of self, which produces humility. What else might we do to breed humility? So having a right view of Jesus. Yeah. To have the mind among Christ, which is yours, in Christ, yeah. who, though is in the form of God, cannot count equality with God, who can grasp, and goes on to just talk about the different ways Jesus humbled himself, yeah. and led to his own exaltation. Yeah. So, so, so if we have a Savior who humbles himself more than any of us ever could, like, being fully God, not stopping to be fully God, but taking on the form of a servant, becoming human, not just becoming human, but becoming a servant who dies and who dies the death of a criminal. Like, if he's that humble, we should be humble. But even in that gospel message, what did we do to contribute to our salvation? What did you do to be right with God? Zero, right? What do we have to boast in? Nothing. What do we have that we didn't receive? Nothing. These realities getting into our heart will produce humility. So number one, I think John the Baptist is a model of humility. Do we delight in decreasing that he might increase? Second thing I think we we can apply is having conviction. John the Baptist was a man of conviction. He publicly stands up and calls the leaders of the day who are in sin offspring of the serpent. He preaches a message of repentance that is not going to be popular to the point where he's willing to die. Here's where I want to first ask a question before we kind of flesh out how we apply it. He is immovable to the point of death in his conviction. How is that not arrogance? How how is it, like the culture, if you say, this is true, and I will not budge on this, they're going to say, you're arrogant. You're just really arrogant. Because humility means that you tolerate everything everyone says all the time. That's humility. What we would say, that's really arrogant in everybody's eyes. So how can he be humble and have conviction? Reconcile those two. Yeah. If it's true, you can still be humble. Let's take that a little farther. I think you're onto something. Yeah. So he's being humble and he's convicted because he trusts in God. Yeah. That's sort of the alternative viewpoint, like no truth can be out there. That's a viewpoint that you're coming up with for yeah. yourself. You're not submitting to God and what he says about reality. Yeah. His conviction is an expression of humility. His conviction is, I'm under the authority of another. I don't have a right to dictate what the message is and is not. The message has already been given. 
in, in the messages that we're sinners that need to repent. And whether you like it or not, I'm under the authority of God, and I have to say what He says, not what you will like. That takes humility to do that. So conviction and humility aren't mutually exclusive. They actually go hand in glove. We just got to make sure our convictions are what God says, right? And not what we want. But he's a man of conviction. He's a man who believes this is what God has said, and I'm going to stand there. How do we develop that? What, do we, what are some elements we need to have convictions? So we need to know something, right? Yeah. So we can't just be like, I have no idea what truth is, but I'm convinced of it, and I'm standing on it. Like we, it starts with knowledge. And, and, and a knowledge of what the Bible actually says. So our, our convictions have to first be grounded and rooted in truth. Right? What else might we do to develop conviction? We need to fear God, not man. Yeah, that's like an essential part. I think all of us in this room, if we're honest, struggle with that, though. Because we want what? We, we want to be liked. We don't want to be thought of as weird or crazy or fanatical. But in order for us to have conviction, we need to know what truth is, and we need to know that that God is the one we seek his smile or frown, not other people's. Okay? I think another aspect of conviction is recognizing that this, and actually believing that this is not the words of men. Like, we, we really believe we're under divine authority. And, and what God says is true. Like, if you were to tell me that I have to believe all the things this book says, and you just told me this is the opinions of wise religious sages, I would want nothing to do with it. Like, no one's going to like me. And no one's going to want to be my friend. And if it's just the words of men, and I have the choice of whether I believe it or not, I don't want to believe that. But if we believe this is the God of the universe speaking to us, I want to be on his side. And if he, what he says is true, I want to believe what's true. And if he says these things are true, man, I want to be in the truth. I think conviction is developed through understanding what truth is, understanding who gives truth, and fearing him more than we fear others. Comments, questions on conviction? All right, last one. I think John gives us a pro John the Baptist gives us a proper view of repentance. We read it in Matthew. What are some things that mark his preaching of repentance? I'm not sure what it means, but he said bear fruit in keeping with. So he says that, right? What do you think what do we think that means? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, don't keep going back and going, doing the same thing. Do any of us who sin and repent go back to it ever? Is it true repentance? Could be, right? So there, there's, there is an aspect in which as sinners we 
are brokenhearted over, we can be brokenhearted over sin. We can honestly confess it and seek, seek to live, it, live out a, a, a Christ-honoring life but still fall back into the same sin. But we don't desire to. What else might he mean by bear fruit in keeping with repentance? What do you think, he, let's start here, what does he not mean? What might be some ideas of what repentance are that are not repentance? Okay, so I got to bear fruit so that God will love me. As long as I keep repenting, God will keep accepting me. That's not biblical. We repent out of understanding that God is merciful, and if we're in Christ, he's forgiven us, and we want to confess. And So yes, we're not earning God's favor. Eric? You want to go in maybe some detail what those might be? So it's not just merely external expressions of some sort of sorrow. The Pharisees were really good at that. Yep. What about just saying, I'm sorry? Is that repentance? Yeah, so it's not just, I'm sorry, and then I just keep, like my heart's not broken over it, and I don't want to put any kind of action behind changing anything yeah yeah so it's not just a, a mere I confess I did this sin that's not repentance what John is saying is that's part of repentance acknowledging our sin right what I did was wrong what I did offended you or what I did offended ultimately God it's, it's this way first a repentant heart recognizes that, is broken by that, and says, Lord, I want to change. Help me change. Lord, what do I need? What, what things might need to be removed from my life? What things might need to be added? Or who might I need to tell to hold me accountable? Like, repentance is tangible often. It's not merely verbal. It's not merely, whoops, sorry. Thank you that I'm forgiven, and I'll just keep doing it with no sense of desire to change. I think that's what John's getting at when he talks about repentance is it's not do these things so God will love you. It's a recognition that my sin truly is an offense to God. And I want to acknowledge to God. I want, I want, to, I want to tell him, you're right. This is, this is sin. Help me change. When he says bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he's, I don't think he's saying that we're perfect. Like if, if you don't always 100% bear only good fruit all the time, you aren't repentant. He's not saying that. What he is saying is the pattern of our life has to be that of, Lord, when I sin, I know it's wrong. I want help. I want help. I may stumble in the same area again, but Lord, I sinned again. I don't like that I sinned again. I know you're merciful. Help me, help me, help me. 
It will manifest itself in, in having brothers and sisters. We can say, I'm struggling with this sin. Help me. I need help. I don't want to do it, but I do it. Help me. I think that's fruit in keeping with repentance. Any additions or questions on that? You might add to that. I do think it's important that we have a right view of repentance. Right? Paul will talk about in, I think it's 2 Corinthians, that like, it's, it's not just sorrow. You can have tears. They could be tears just because you got caught. They could be tears because you don't want to give up your sin. There's a, there is a difference between worldly sorrow and sorrow that leads to repentance. We, we want to have a proper view of repentance. I think, I think John helps us see that. All right. Questions, comments on anything that we talked about? We have negative one minute and 36 seconds. So any questions or comments? Yes. In John 1, when, um, when it's talking about the testimony of John the Baptist and the, uh, the priests that were sent asked, who are you? And he says, not the Christ. And they said, uh, what then are you, Elijah? And he said, no. And they, uh, and they asked, I, I can't find it, but it's like, are, are you the prophet? Yeah. Um, are they referring to a specific prophet that they were waiting for, or is it just like a prophet yeah. after the silence? Yeah, Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, I think it is, is expecting another prophet like Moses. So we're waiting like the ultimate prophet like Moses. And, and John the Baptist is saying, not me. That's going to be Jesus, right? He's going to be the prophet like Moses. Um, and I think when he says he's not Elijah, I think what he's saying there is I'm not Elijah incarnate. I don't know that he recognized or was self-conscious that he was the Elijah-like prophet. He may have been, but I think that's what he's getting at more is like, I'm not any of the guys that you think, I'm not Elijah in the flesh. I'm not the prophet. I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a voice. I'm just a a mouth talking about Messiah's coming. So, yeah. Quick follow-up on that. Was it not clear in the uh, Pharisees' mind that the ultimate prophet is is the Christ? Because he starts saying, I'm not the Christ. And they still ask, are you the prophet? Yeah, there was, I think in Jewish culture, or mindset, there's two different figures. There's, I mean, there's a wide variety in Jewish opinion, but like, I think there is this idea that there's going to be a prophet, there's going to be a Messiah. Yeah. New Testament kind of takes them and just... Yeah. Good questions. All right, I'm going to close in prayer. If you want to come talk about anything, I'm happy to talk after. So let's pray. Father, we come and we thank you for the life of John the Baptist. Lord, I pray for all of us that you would help us to be men and women like him who point others to Christ who see in Christ such high worth and value that it breeds humility. Lord, that we would be people convinced of your message, that we would be men and women of conviction. And Lord, all of us sin. Help us to have a right view of repentance and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.